I hope no one came last week because we weren't here. I had a number of people mention that it was odd not to, to gather together. It was odd also at our house. We had a service in our living room with our kids, and that was a great opportunity. And so we just kind of moved everything back. So the sermon I was planning on preaching last week, I'm going to preach this morning. So, which is fitting. If you read the passage, right, if the Lord wills. Uh, he didn't will it for us to have it last week. He wills it for this week. So we're going to be in the, the book of James again, James chapter 4. So as you're turning there, I'll start off here with a, a phrase that I think you've heard before. God helps those who help themselves. I've heard that phrase more times than I can count. <clears throat> and usually I smile politely and cringe inside. Some well-meaning people say this as, as a way to encourage you to keep going, to keep striving and moving forward. If you find this phrase in your, in your Bible, it's only because it's on the other side of a bookmark with a poem about footprints in the sand. Because it's not in Scripture. But a majority of Americans believe that this is a biblical phrase. God helps those who help themselves. George Barna and his research group said that 53% of Americans agree strongly with that statement. 22% agree somewhat, 7% disagree somewhat, 14% disagree strongly, and 5% says they don't know. Of born-again Christians, 68% agree. 81% of non-born-again Christians agree with the statement also. Maybe you've said it before. Maybe you even believe it. Most attribute the, the, the statement to Benjamin Franklin. Franklin's poor Richard's almanac includes this phrase in it, but Franklin was not the originator of it, as far as we know. Some would point back to early Greek and Roman folklore or Aesop's fables where versions of this saying were found. Versions of the saying also appear in George Herbert's uh, poetry in the early 17th century. Others see it as originating in uh, discourses concerning government from the 1680s. But many people still come back to the point that this has its origins in the Bible. And most people think that this is the central theme of the Bible. This is a tragedy. This is a lie from the pit of hell. The statement is rooted in pride. And the thought that if I do enough, if I, if I work hard, if I plan well, if I do, do those things well, all of it will, will turn out well. Because God will see what I've done and then reward me. But that isn't the point of the Bible. In fact, we're not the point of the Bible. Jesus is. We get ourselves into trouble when we forget who we are and why we are here. Our hearts have a propensity towards pride, and James is here to bring us back to reality and to show us a better way. Today, Lord willing, we will finish chapter four. Only one chapter left of this book, and perhaps you can't wait for it to end. I warned you it would be a tough book. James really doesn't hold things back. He exposes our pride, stripping it naked, exposed for all to see. Isaiah 66, 2 says, But this is the one to whom I will look, he who was humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. 
This morning, James serves us because he will give us a warning again. Prideful speech and arrogance in our lives will never gain the gaze of God. Only humble acceptance and obedience of him will get God's attention. Humility draws the gaze of our sovereign God. Let me say that again. Humility draws the gaze of our sovereign God. God in his mercy is drawing our attention away from this prideful assumption of life and wanting to draw our eyes back again to him. So let's read this passage. If you haven't turned there, turn to James 4. If you're using a Bible in your seats, it's on page 952. We want to encourage you to, to find a Bible there, everyone. If, if you don't have a Bible, you're going to be lost, okay? You need a Bible open in front of us. We're going to come back to the word time and again here this morning. And we're going to look at verses 11 through the end of the chapter in James chapter 4. So listen as I read James chapter 4, starting at verse 11. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against the brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge. He was able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance, all such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. I'm going to pray. I ask that you would pray for me and I'll pray for you as we get started. Father, we come again before your throne and we ask that you would teach your people here this morning. As we cover this passage, God, that you would make us aware of the prideful speech and prideful arrogance that sometimes lingers in our hearts and our actions and our words. Expose that to us this morning, God. May you teach us, may you teach your people to, to be humble, to humbly accept who you are and how you work in our lives and that we would be humble in our obedience to you and to your word. Teach us this morning, God. Cause us to become more like Jesus as we leave this place. For we ask it all in Jesus' name, amen. As you came in, you should have gotten a bulletin and an outline. Sorry, the date on there is last week, so we're recycling since we didn't meet. But the outline is still the same. Four points there of prideful speech, prideful arrogance, humble acceptance, and humble obedience. And first is prideful speech, and we're going to look at verses 11 and 12. James is continuing from the prior section, and all this works together. You know, as I sit down and, and try to outline a book to preach, it's really hard sometimes to, to, to find breaks to preach. So I just, this is my best attempt, and I, and I chose to include verses 11 and 12 in this section because I sense James, again, establishing the issues of pride in the lives of believers. So I could be wrong. Other preachers might do it differently. That's all right. But this one issue that James keeps coming back to in the book is our speech, and he does it here in verses 11 and 12. He says, 
do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. And the tongue here is, again, one of the primary sources of conflict and contention in our lives. To speak evil here refers to backbiting, to fault-finding, to harsh criticism that too often characterizes our lives and the life of the church. It's slander, really. The, the slanderer refuses to learn the facts, and they avoid speaking in the presence of the accused, and they set aside any love and ultimately make themselves the judge. But when you slander someone, you put yourself above the law of God, you make yourself a judge over that person. See, to gossip is to take a true story where it shouldn't go. But to slander is to create and to spread false stories to harm someone. Slander is against the one whom you are speaking about, and ultimately, it's against God. When you slander, James says, you show that you believe yourself to be the judge of the law. How is that? It's by choosing to ignore many commands in the law, especially the law of love towards your neighbor. And we put ourselves in a position of deciding which of them we really think should be obeyed by that person, rather than allowing God's law to shape their life. And ultimately, we refuse to submit to God. We usurp his rule and place ourselves then in the seat of judgment. You essentially put yourself above the law. We, we are essentially showing that we don't understand the law or we don't respect the law of God when we do this. And we cherry pick what we like and what we don't like, choosing only what we feel we should obey and disregarding the rest. And we place ourselves in the level with God, choosing which things we will obey and ignoring the rest. And how is this most frequently observed by me? One little way, at the door when church is over and a few people, not many, come to tell me that they wish that this person could have heard that sermon. <laughs> they say things like, they really needed to hear that. They really need to change. If you've ever said that, I have to tell you, you've placed yourself as judge over that person. Essentially, you're saying to me, I didn't really need to hear that, but oh, they did. And I want to warn you to be careful, friends. James says to us, there is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and destroy, but who are you to judge your neighbor? There's only one lawgiver and judge, and I've got news for you. It's not you. It's not me. I don't know if this is new information for you this morning, but perhaps you need to underline it. God is the one who establishes what is right as the lawgiver and also the one who punishes the wrongdoer as judge. So when we usurp God's judging authority by judging a person, we're really blaspheming God. You're saying that you're better equipped for the task than God is. But you might say, isn't there times where we need to make judgments about others in terms of their behavior? Now, he's not saying that we should never exercise discernment about what people say and what people do in their lives. No, he's really pointing to the motive and how we express this concern. 
There's passage after passage in the New Testament especially. Paul says in Galatians 6.1, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Again, pointing to motive. And he says, then keep watch of yourself, lest you be tempted. That picture in, in Galatians 6 is, is that is, uh, how many of you are fishermen? All right, there's seven of you. You guys should get together. If you're out fishing in a boat, you know, and you see a fisherman that has somehow fallen out of their boat and they're trapped in their net and they can't rescue himself. He's, this is the picture in Galatians 6.1, that you go and you see them trapped and with gentleness and meekness and love, you want to release them from that trap. All the motive and how we go about it. So we're still to, to judge in that way, to use discernment. But James is saying we should never to discern others' behaviors and words. It should never be characterized by that of a judgmental or a hypercritical spirit. We need to check our motives. The, the correct balance is seen in Matthew 18, the passage on church discipline. Unrepentant believers may need church discipline and in extreme situations, even excommunication from the church. The problem is, in most situations in life, we're not dealing with those extreme, clear-cut cases of unrepentant sin. But it's fault-finding with, with fellow believers in gray areas in their life. One commentator, George Stulak, suggests three ways in which Christians are often too quick to criticize. He says, we, we, we're quick to judge the motives behind, behind others' words or actions, or judging how others spend their money, or judging how others rear their children. And we need to be careful and not having a judgmental and hypercritical spirit with others. And when we see others in sin, it should be from a desire to want to help them, free them from the sin so they can see and understand the gospel and the hope in the gospel, not to heap more on top of them. We need to heed the warning in verse 12. There's only one lawgiver and judge, and it's not us. God and God alone is the one who saves and destroys. Instead, our response should be to seek to save. And this is what James ends the book on. Turn to the last verse in James chapter 5, verse 20. Because this is his, his, his point and direction where he's going and all this uh, of how he's writing to reach out to this church. He says in verse 20 of chapter 5, the last verse, let him know that whoever brings back his sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Pointing right directly to the motive. I wanna, I wanna rescue them from the air that they're in. Our job is to seek others that have wandered away and call them back with the hope of the gospel, with love and concern. To turn from that way, turn from it. It's not to judge, it's not to call them out. It's to show the same mercy that we have received from God. Do you see the difference, friends? So I ask, how is your speech towards others? Do you realize that how you treat others with your words reflects your view of who God is? What you do with your words about others say something about God. Before entering into criticism of others, we need to ask some questions. What good does it do for your brother? What good does it do for ourselves? And ultimately, what glory for God is in it? 
And if we can answer all those things positively, we should go forward, but we shouldn't do it with a prideful speech. It should be from a heart to rescue them from their sin. So that's point one, prideful speech. Point two, prideful arrogance. I've lived a life that's full. I've traveled each and every highway and much, much more than this, I did it my way. Regrets, I've had a few, but then again, too few to mention. I did what I had to do and I saw it through without exemption. I planned each charted course, each careful step along the byway and much, much more than this, I did it my way. Should have sang it for you. What song is it? My way. Who sang it? Frank Sinatra. You know what you get in that song? Practical atheism made popular through song. James says in verse 13, come now you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Planning. That's what James is talking about here. I realized this morning that some of you are planners. Some of you are not. Well, you really are. We all plan in some way. Some of us are multi-layered, extensive plans, and others plan from one minute to the next, but you're making plans. And this is James relaying something that I'm sure was, was shared in the churches during that time and most frequently shared now. As he moves on to a new subject, the tongue still is at the center. He says there in verse 13, come now. This is James' way of saying, listen up. Give me your attention. Listen, making plans isn't sinful. Making plans, especially for a business endeavor, is necessary. It's not sinful. This, this, this verse is not condemning planning for the future. So don't go and cancel your 401k. That's not what he's saying. Proverbs 15, 22, without counsel, plans fail, but with many ad- advisors, they succeed. Proverbs 21.5, the plans of the diligent lead surely to abundance, but everyone who is hastily comes only to poverty. Luke 14, 28 through 30, for which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish it, all who see it begin to mock him, saying this man began to build and was not able to finish. See, these verses, and there's many more, do not condemn planning. Planning is not sinful, but verse 13 is a godless statement. God is nowhere to be found in verse 13. Jump down to verse 16 to see God's response to the plans of men. He says, as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Wow. He's saying this planning This verse 13, this planning is arrogant and evil. Let me read the verse again, okay? Just see if you get that, okay? Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Did, did, Did your mind automatically jump to that statement as arrogant and evil? Did you struggle to get there? I mean, nothing seems unethical here. Is it wrong to make a profit? No. Business is not evil. Making money isn't morally wrong. Doing well in your work isn't bad. Being rich isn't a sin. So what is James teaching us here this morning? He's saying we can plan arrogantly, full of pride, ultimately forgetting God, 
And because God is jealous for his people, he warns them for this miscalculation in their earthly pursuits. Because God loves us and he wants us to follow him, he's going to give more grace to draw us back to him, right? And we learned that a few weeks ago. Did you guys forget already? Have you forgotten? God gives more grace, amen? The proof is in these verses. God won't allow us to continue living our lives in arrogance and boasting our plans. People who plan their lives, their futures without any thought of God and and his plans and sovereignty will have their ways frustrated by him. Count on it. And the error that James will show us is their confidence in the certainty of their plans. Jesus showed us in the parable of the rich man in Luke 12. Let me read it for you. Jesus told him a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentiful. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, drink and be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. In the end, someone else would own all that that man had had acquired because he stored up treasure for himself and was not rich toward God. Nothing has changed since. Jesus shared this parable. Nothing's changed. Generation after generation, we keep functioning this way. Way back in the 1800s, 1890, Charles Spurgeon preached the same passage. Do you know it's good for you to read old sermons? It is good for you. And you say, I don't like to read them. That's okay. Because one in our own church, and he's going to get mad that I say this, Zach Kispert records Charles Spurgeon's sermons. Hearspurgeon.com. He's not happy, I'm sure I mentioned that. That's right. Too bad. He hasn't gotten to the sermon yet. But you can go on and listen to Charles Spurgeon's sermons read by Zach. But I want to read an excerpt from this sermon. He hasn't gotten there. He'll get there later, Lord willing. Spurgeon said in this passage, men today are just the same as when these words were first written. We still find people saying what they are going to do today, tomorrow, in six months' time, at the end of another year, and perhaps still further. I have no doubt there are persons here who have their own career mapped out before them pretty distinctly, and they feel well nigh certain that they will realize it all. We are like the men of the past, and this book, though it has been written so long ago, might have been written yesterday, so exactly does it describe human nature. It's always been the same, and James is warning these selfish, man-centered, self-glorifying planners that their plans have nothing to do with God. And their plans are arrogant and evil because they remove God from their thinking. Their arrogance has presumed that they will live long as they want and they'll do whatever they want in their life. Their arrogance has presumed that they can make any plans that they want. And in their arrogance, they believe that their plans will succeed. And they have forgotten God. They have forgotten that they don't know the future. They have forgotten that they're frail. They have forgotten that they depend upon God. And to them, money and success and fame and achievement is more important than God. And one thing to be sure, our sovereign Lord gets his way always. 
If he wants me to open up a new business, he will allow it. If he wants my children to grow up and get married, he'll, he'll bring it to pass. It is the Lord's sovereignty, not our power, that gets things done. Only one amen. It is him. It's not you. It's not me. And James has this rude way now of awakening us. He says, you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What's your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. He's speaking to every single one of us. Like what you saw driving up the hill this morning, the mist that covered. That's your life. We're a vapor. Our lives on earth are such a short time compared to eternity. Man, the older I get, the more I sense this. Time just flies. More and more, life is short. Do you hear it in James' words? We are a mist appearing for a little while and then vanishing. That's our life compared to eternity. We don't know what tomorrow holds. Only God does. The late R.C. Sproul said, Apart from God, I cannot exist. Apart from me, God does exist. God does not need me in order for him to be. I do need God in order for me to be. This is the difference between what we call a self-existent being and a dependent being. We are dependent. We are fragile. And you, are, you and I are completely dependent on God, whether you realize it or not, whether you believe it or not. You are. And this truth should humble us. It should, it should wipe away any pride from our thoughts. We are here today and gone tomorrow. And we should remind ourselves of the prayer of Moses in Psalm 90, verse 12. So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Moses says to us, we need to number our days. And so I need to ask, how many days do you have left? You know, I would be a, a really poor pastor if I didn't ask you that question. How many days do you have left? It'd be unloving for me not to ask you that. Moses teaches us to number our days, and James says our lives are a mess. So how many days do you have left? I recognize that there are some of you possibly here this morning that these questions freak you out. And if you're honest with yourself, some of you realize that you have no eternal plans. Today, perhaps, is the first time that you've been in church, first time sitting under the preaching of the Bible, or, or perhaps you've been here for years, and yet you have no eternal plans. And perhaps today's the last time you sit under the God's word preached. I'm happy you're here, but I need to ask you questions. Because you need to think deeply about this. Where will you go when you die? Everyone dies. The stats come in every year. Everyone dies. I recognize, I think about this, not every week, but very frequently, that when we gather together as the body of Christ here, this might be the last time where they're all gathered like this. The U.S. Census Bureau has projections that for men, their life expect expectancy is 77.1 years, and for women, 81.9, because they're not as dumb as men and they live longer. So if you're in your 30s here, you've got around 45 years left. If you're a woman, you've got 50. 
That's if nothing happens first. These are just numbers, they're not guarantees. In fact, I was driving down to Portland a week and a half ago, just passing over the border into Oregon on 205 when a truck right in front of me slammed on his brake so quickly and swerved to miss a car in front of them. And I'm on a bridge and, I, and that thought, I got so close I could see that they were missing a screw in their license plate holder. And the thought was, I'll see Jesus. Nothing happened, but it could have been. But I know without a shadow of a doubt because of Christ where I'm going. You know, you may not make it home today. I may not make it through the sermon. That'd be a great way to die. Our lives are not in our own hands. Our lives are in the hands of God. And the truth that God wants you to know this morning is that you don't have to live in fear of what might happen. And the most important thing for you to realize today, friends, isn't where you are right now, but where you're aimed, where you're going, where you will end up when this life is completed. And you might have come here this morning thinking that you have your life all planned out, that it will go to plan, and it'll go exactly as you think. And you, and you might have come thinking, God helps those who help themselves. All I need to do is, is make good decisions and be nice to people and treat them with dignity and make wise financial plans and, and have kids and train them well, and, and, and things will go this way. I, I will work hard, I'll be honest, and God will answer all that I want. All I have to do is be smart and with my life and be good and God will then reward me. And I have news for you, that's a lie. God says to you this morning, you do not know what tomorrow will bring. For what is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Every single one of us seated here this morning, today, could be gone at any moment. And so when I say, friends, in sermons, now is the day of salvation. I'm quoting 2 Corinthians 6 because we're not promised tomorrow. There's urgency in that statement. And there's perhaps some of you here today that have pushed aside Jesus Christ, believing that he died for you, perhaps thinking they have more time. You know, Carson Williams, who came back from boot camp, was telling me he was talking to other soldiers and they were, they were saying, you know, I know about the gospel, but I have, I'll deal with it later. And Carson was like, that's just, What's up with that? I'm like, it's stupid. You're not promised tomorrow to think that you can sit here and just, when you're old, when, you, when you've finished how you want to live your life, then later you can deal with that. James is saying that's foolish. Jesus said that's foolish. Fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you prepared, whose will they be? Today is the day where you lay aside all the riches of this world that has promised you and grab hold of the eternal riches that only God can give you. Spurgeon has rightly said, let us grip the eternal and sit loose by the temporal. The jewels of eternity will glitter in our crowns when all things pass away, but the, the trifles of this life are as flowers when children pluck them in the meadows, which wither in their hands before they can get them home to mom and dad. Friends, do you realize this morning that you will exist forever? You and God are both in the universe to stay. 
either as friends on his terms or as enemies on your terms, which will be proven in your life. And I plead with you this morning, friends. I don't care if you've been here your whole life. You've grown up in this church and you think that you're a Christian because your parents have brought you here since you were in the nursery. I don't care. I plead with you, a friend, turn from this world and turn to Christ. He is more wonderful than you can imagine, and he can save you for all eternity. His plans for your life are much better than your plans. You need to repent. Turn from the world. Turn from this foolishness. Turn from those empty promises that will never satisfy, and turn to Christ. He alone will satisfy your longings. He promises to do this. And he satisfies, he he fulfills all of his promises. And for those of us here that are living in confidence, because you have, you are trusting in Christ and you are a Christian, you also need to heed and listen to James' words. And you need to do something with this passage. And and I want to suggest that you should have a missed mindset. Okay? A missed mindset that will control your time on earth. Not allowing anxiety to rule your life. That's not obedient to God, but continue to confess that to him. And as you make plans, hold them loosely, knowing that you submit your life to the Lord of eternity. And we need to have a, a missed mindset. It should affect our priorities. It should affect how we live. It should affect our focus for our time here on earth. And I want to give you some suggestions. You know, having a missed mindset, we will serve God and serve others. Jesus displayed this for us so well. Even though his purpose for coming to earth was incredibly important, he didn't neglect to serve others. And where are you serving God? How are you right now serving your family? You know, it doesn't have to be big and flashy, but it needs to be faithful. There are still so many ways to serve God in our lives. Even here at church, you keep listening for ways in the bulletin or the church app. And I recognize, I recognize though that there are many that are seated here this morning that are already serving God in some way at church. And you're not exempt. Because my question to you this morning is, who are you training right now? Who are you training right now to take over for you? You might say, I have no plans to step down. I love, I love serving this capacity. Jeff, are you asking me to step down? No, I'm not. But you need to answer what this, what this statement here is in verse 13. Are you repeating the, the same as those arrogant, evil things that those businessmen were saying? You are making plans that you have no business making. What is your life? You're here today and gone tomorrow. And we need to change our thinking. It's sinful. It's a lie to think that we will always be here. You see how prideful it is? We need to stop thinking that way. Only God can say what will happen tomorrow. You and I can't. We need to start thinking biblically about your life and your service here at the church. You shouldn't live in such a way that you will be here forever. You need to begin to train someone else to do your job. You need to do it right now. That's the pattern that we see in scripture. The pattern that we see always is working yourself out of a job. 
You serve and you work someone else into that job. So, so for every job here at the church, someone else needs to be prepared to take it over if necessary. Every ministry, Sunday school teachers, children's church leader and teachers, Awana commander, Donna, you need to have someone ready. Greg Coe, where are you at? You need to have someone ready. Teachers of, of core seminars, Eric Peterson needs to have someone ready. Musicians, audio, kitchen, those that lock and unlock the building, everything. Even the preaching of God's word. This falls on me. The preaching ministry cannot be hinging on me. I could have died on 205 last week. I, I'm sure there's other times where God could have taken me and I have no clue about. You know, if you, if you were here, the very first Sunday I was introduced to senior pastor, I told you I'm your next interim pastor. So just count, you can call me that, that's fine. It doesn't bother me one bit. Because Lord willing, there'll be another man that will follow my ministry here. You know, I, I pray for that. Seriously, that's on my weekly list. I pray for the next man that's gonna take over after me. And I have no plans of going anywhere. They're my plans, but I have no plans. In fact, one of the reasons in this year's budget is we have a line to hire, to hire a pastoral intern. It's, it's for the purpose of training men for ministry. They would have wisdom now and discernment and searching for a man to be willing to come and serve, to be trained and perhaps someday, if Lord wills, serve here full time. Friends, we need to have a missed mindset. That's what we should have. It's, it's not just for our service, though, at church. We should have that for our families as well. And realizing that if you have kids at home, they're only there for so long. I hear that kids eventually want to leave. Mine don't. You know, honestly, Katie and I do lament regularly as we think of just the, the few short years we have kids in our home. And time moves fast, I swear. As parents, we only have those few short years to influence our kids for the kingdom of God. William Farley says, parenting is to transfer the baton of faith in Christ to the next generation. Now, there is no doubt that God is sovereign over our kids' souls, and he is the one who does the saving but he chooses to use us as parents, frail, broken people to teach our kids who God is. And so parents, we need to spend time with our kids intentionally, talking and praying and reading with them and evangelizing them and playing games with them and making puzzles together and laughing with them and discipling them because they will soon be out of our house. And realize, parents, if you're here, we as a church family are with you. Right, church? We're with you. You're not in it by yourself. We stand with you as you raise your kids. We promise to pray for you. In fact, if you're here this morning and you don't have kids, go find someone before the service. They're running out the door, chasing down, and you see they have kids and tell them, I'm gonna pray for you this week. Because I'll tell you what, as a parent, we need your prayers some of them just need sleep, right, parents? But we need the church to pray for us. We need to have this missed mindset in your marriages. Some of you think that you are promised weeks and years yet of marriage. You don't know. And some of you just 
plain need to ask for forgiveness of one another of, of sins. And you're holding on to stuff days and weeks, thinking, you're planning that you're gonna have decades and God says, you don't know. We need to have this mismindset in our marriages. We need to have it in our neighborhoods, seeking to build relationships with those that live closest to us. Do you know your neighbors? Are you praying for them? You know, they could be here and gone tomorrow. Have you gotten to know them? You maybe need to go next door and confess that you've lived next door for 20 years, you've never met them. Do it now. We need to live that way. You know, this, this passage warns us and we need to lean into it, friends. Not just reflect back and cower back. We need to lean into this warning and absorb it and apply it to our life. It's a warning to us not to live our lives with prideful speech and prideful arrogance. God is the one who is in control of our lives and we need this reminder this morning. We need this every day. Instead of pride dominating our lives, we should be humble. So that leads to the last two points here. Humble acceptance of his will and humble obedience. So third, humble acceptance, verse 15. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. James still hasn't left the discussion of our tongues. No, remember our speech reveals our hearts. And does your speech reveal that you trust in God or that you trust in yourself? Does your speech reveal that you trust in God or yourself? Does your speech reveal that your plans supersede everything? that you really believe that your plans are unbreakable? Do you, do you make plans and never consult God? Do we talk like Christians or do we talk like the world in regards to our lives, our plans? You know, Moses lived a life of trust. He wasn't perfect, but he's an example for us. One of trust in the sovereign plan of God. And in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 29, the last verse, Moses gives to us some world-rocking truth. He says, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. Friends, the secret things do not belong to Jeff, and they don't belong to you. They belong to God. Not everything that is true in this world has been revealed. There are still things that are hidden that are true. And in God and his infinite wisdom is keeping that from us. Those secret things are there to teach us to trust in him. To obey him. And they're there to humble us. To remind us again of who we are. They're, they're to crush us beneath the magnitude of our God. To recognize who he is. That he is big and we are small. There are things that God is going to do and that he won't reveal to us and that should humble us. And this might cause you to have anxiety because you're not in control of your life. It might be news to you. You might be living in denial of that truth this morning, but it doesn't remove its truthfulness. You're not in control of your life. God is. You know, the world wants you to feel like you're in control that you can be self-sufficient, you can so arrogantly speak and act as if you're sure of the future. But you and I do not know what tomorrow holds. We have no control over it. And the people that James is writing to are a lot like us. They, there's in, many in these churches that were wealthy. Do you realize that we live in one of the wealthiest countries in the world? There are not many. There are some, but there are not many in the U.S. that have to worry about their next meal. 
And yet we forget to pray for those needs because we've learned to be self-sufficient. And these people are no different. Wealthy individuals who have responded to their trials of life by confidently boasting the future profitability of their enterprises. And now remember, James is not condemning wealth here. It's not sinful to have money. Wealth can be used to further the gospel and planning is an essential part of stewardship that God requires of us. But we can so easily get distracted by those things. What James is denouncing here is the idea that money can bring any security to us. The wealth we have today can be lost tomorrow. Your bank account can be empty tomorrow. You know, I have a bank account with Wells Fargo. And last week, I couldn't log on a whole day. And I thought, what if I log on and it's all gone? Bank error. You know, I could fight and get all angry, but I, it could happen. We could log on and all the money's gone. So friends, your security can't be in your money. You can't boast in that. Instead, we should boast in the thing, the one that can outlive all of this. We boast in God. And James is teaching us to take hold of our words here in verse 15. He's training us to speak in line with God. This isn't some magical incantation, if the Lord wills. It's not something magical that we speak and therefore, no, that's not. He's teaching us to have humility in our lives, to have humility in our plans. I use the phrase, if the Lord wills, not as a means to sound spiritual, but as a reminder to myself, Jeff, you're not in control. I need that reminder. I like the plan. I need the reminder. I did not like canceling church last week. I had to confess that as, as a sinful tendency that I just wanted to do it because my plan, I had a preaching schedule. And it got messed up. I had to confess that was, that's wrong, Jeff. You're not in control. If the Lord wills, we'll be here. And Paul had this way of communicating. You know, Paul says it multiple times, Acts 18, 21, but on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if, the God will, if God wills. And then he set sail from Ephesus. In 1 Corinthians 4, 19, but I come to you soon if the Lord wills. You hear this language from Paul. For many years in Great Britain, they would sign their letters and end with the initials DV. You guys know about this? Deo Valente, which is a Latin for God willing. And most Puritans 200, 300 years ago would sign their letters with those two letters, DV. It was like their emoji or their hashtag, DV. God willing. And it's taken right from this passage here in James. If the Lord wills, we will do this or do that. If the Lord wills, Dio Valente. How many of you, if you own a business, could just really rock your partners, your business partners, by just signing every document that you have plans for, God willing? Seriously, think of the, the questions you would have. What do you mean, God willing? Well, I submit to him. And our business submits to him. We, we, we've moved away from that. We will do this, Jeff willing. We're in trouble. Our, our minds should be thinking, God willing. But some of us, if you're honest with yourself this morning, we don't like those words. Those two words haunt you because you like to be in control. 
Some of us here this morning are making plans for life, and, and God is far from the conversation. You have plans. You have an idea how life is going to work. You've been smart. You've, you've done your homework, and things are going to work out the way you think they're going to work out. And I say, oh, really? You know, I had plans too. I like to plan. I told you that. I planned when I graduated from high school to attend university and to get my degree in broadcasting because I wanted to be in the radio. I wasn't good enough looking to be on TV, so the radio. That was my plan. Nothing sinful there. God had other plans. He changed it. My next plan was, was to, I'm, I'm going to serve God, so I'll be, I'll be a youth pastor. I went down and, and got education, came back to my home church, the church I grew up in, to be the youth pastor, and met my wife there. And I thought, it's my plan. I'm going to stay here. God had other plans. He, he changed that and brought us 2,500 miles west to Washington State. Then I had to plan to, to, to finish seminary and to go into the pastorate. But then God changed that, and we went to Sweden. Worked five years to, to prepare and plan to be in Sweden for the rest of our life. And I laughed, though. And 13 months later, God changed that. Man, he changed my plans over and over and over. And mind you, he didn't ask me. <laughs> Jeff, is it okay? He just changed it. And now I have a plan to be here at EBC until Jesus comes back. That's my plan. I don't know anything else. Nothing wrong about planning, nothing sinful. But I recognize God has other plans possibly. And God has the right to change my plans. You might have had a plan too. You go to college, get a degree, get married, have a couple kids, live, work, save, invest, retire at 60, buy an, an RV and drive around the U.S., but now your wife's sick and you can't go anywhere. Just talked to a couple yesterday that had, had walked through all the plans and they were talking about their parents and, and they didn't plan for a spouse to get sick and have cancer and now go into extreme debt in retirement to pay off medical bills? See, our plans are nothing in comparison to God's plans. It's not how it works. See, see, God doesn't bend to our will. No, we bend to his will. And friends, you need to listen to this. This is why it's vital for you to pray. To be a Christian without prayer is no more possible than to be alive without breathing. How will you understand the will of God for your life if you don't pray? Prayer is calling on God to fulfill his promises that he's given to us in his word. And where do we read and understand his will? It's in the Bible. It's through the word. So prayer goes hand in hand with reading the Bible. And if you're here this morning, friend, and you are not in the word and you're not praying and you're living your life outside of the will of God. And no wonder you're stressed and beaten up because you're disconnected. You do not have because you do not ask, James says. And when we pray, we hold our hands open to God of the universe saying, your will be done, not mine. Donald Burdick has written, for a believer to leave God out of his plans is an arrogant assumption of self-sufficiency. A tacit declaration of independence from God. It is to overlook reality. Whether men recognize it or not, they will live and do this or that only if it is the Lord's will. And you live and breathe because the God of the universe has allowed you to do that. 
no matter what you believe about God, it doesn't change the truth of that. He is the one in control. And we need to grow in our humble acceptance of God's will for our lives. Last, we need to have humble obedience. It says in verse 17, so whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it for him, it is sin. James sums up well his teaching for us this morning. James is getting our attention here. So whoever, he's saying eye contact, all of you, this, listen to this, look here. If you know the right thing to do and yet you fail to do it, it is sin. This is a sin of omission. There are sins of commission. We usually hear more about those. Sins we intentionally do that go against what God has commanded, but there's also sins of omission. Both are real sins, both incur real guilt. Alex Moiter has written, to James, the sin of presumption is so important, so basic, that it is as if the category of sins of omission have been deliberately devised in connection with it. We might consider it a small thing, a passing feature of life, if we forget how dependent we are and act in mere self-will. He sees it as the hard core of vaunting pride, which is the mark and curse of fallen man. Here, above all places, we cannot afford to fall into the sin of omission, in other words, when even in little, secret, almost unrecognized ways, we forget how frail we are and stop short of conscious dependence on our God, it is an element of the proud, boastful, vaunting human spirit, flaunting its supposed independence and self-sufficiency. Whew. I should convict you. It does me. God, we need to recognize our dependence upon him. And sin, in essence, is a matter of what rules and controls our hearts. And what could be more sinful than the pride of arrogance, of self-rule in the face of a sovereign will and sovereign grace of God? What could be more ugly than to own my life as if it's my own when I've been bought with a price? If you count yourself a Christian here this morning, your life doesn't belong to you any longer. It belongs to God. And it is possible to... to to think that you are inside of God's boundaries when actually you're living way outside of God's boundaries because you've subtly put yourself in place of only where God can be. Friends, does, does God really help those who help themselves? Is that really what the message of the Bible is? And we find no evidence in the Bible for this way of thinking. We find the opposite. God helps those who have come to believe they could never help themselves. As Christians, we run to the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. He came to do his Father's will. Every single word and thought, every action, every choice, everything he did on earth was in complete submission to the will of the Father. And in Jesus, so perfectly, we see humility. He was never seduced by pride or materialism. He lived the perfect life. He was willing to live without many of the things that we say are absolutely necessities for our life. And we need to think of that. The God of the universe left the perfect fellowship of the Trinity and humiliated himself to come to earth, to be rejected, to be tortured, to face injustice with the Father ultimately turning his back on him. And now listen, friends, every act of submission to the Father was for you and for me because that submission took him to the cross where he would carry the penalty for your sin and for my sin. And his submission took him to a borrowed tomb where he would then conquer death. And so we can run to him and say again this morning, we seek your forgiveness. We seek your power. We seek your salvation that, you, that we recognize can only be found in you. 
Because you, again and again, you is where hope is found. And we rest this morning in the work that only Jesus Christ has done for us. And we recognize that we need this work this morning as much as we did the first day that we believed it. We need the gospel. I've been praying that we would take this passage to heart and apply it to our lives. I've been praying that we don't gloss over this and put it aside because we're busy. One of my favorite preachers, I'll quote him again, Charles Spurgeon has said, oh, busy here, you will have to find time to die before long. Why not think of that solemn certainty? You are very busy and yet you find time to eat. Have you no time to feed your soul? You find time to put on your dress. Have you no time to dress your soul? You seek out a surgeon when you're ill. Have you no time to seek out a savior for your sin-sick soul? It is not that you have the time, but you have not the heart. And I'm asking that God would give you the heart to endure his word, to understand it, to accept it, to apply it to your life. Friends, life is short. Eternity is long. Now live like it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. And we recognize the significance and the heaviness of your word. And yet, God, it speaks to us. It's a, a balm for my soul, my weary heart. We recognize there's times in our life where, where we just, we continue on and we forget about you, God. We just, we make plans and, and good and even godly plans to serve you, and yet we forget you. God, please remind us of that. Help us as the church, as brothers and sisters in the Lord, to remind one another gently and lovingly. Come alongside to encourage one another. Help us, God, not to, to forget in our pride who you are. Help us not to, to be a judgmental and critical in our spirit towards one another. Help us to recognize your patience with us when we, when we interact with other people. Help us to be patient towards them. And I pray that we are a church that plans, that makes good and godly plans, but that we hold those plans loosely, knowing that you are sovereign over all. May you be honored and glorified in our lives and in our church family. For we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.